let's, let's get the word in front of our eyes this morning, whatever that means for you, paper, digital, scroll, whatever, uh, and head over to James chapter 2. Uh, last week, <clears throat> as a bit of a reminder, James called us to be not just hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word as well, and then he gave a few examples of what religion that is, is pure and undefiled looks like, and, and he, he said, right, it's, it's the exercising of self-control and the things that come out of our mouth, our speech, uh, it's caring for, for widows and orphans and their need, and it's keeping ourselves unstained from the world. Uh, today, then, James is going to move forward, right? He's going to tell us, uh, he's really going to bring us into this idea of, of how we treat others, right? Particularly outsiders, how this reveals how well we really understand the mercy of God that is shown to us in the gospel in Christ, right? And and I want to, to read this in two parts today, so we're just going to read the first part, the first, I think, eight verses, and then we'll read the rest of it a bit later in the sermon. But uh, let's, just, let's just jump right in. We're in Luke, or sorry, man, that goes back. We're in James chapter 2, and we're going to be getting in verse 1 here. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, you said here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And are, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, partiality in all its forms is, is difficult for us to talk about. It is difficult for us to admit to, difficult to repent of. Lord, we don't care what politicians and celebrities and the media or any of those other people might have to say, but we care very dearly what you have to say in your word. Well, Holy Spirit, please give us wisdom to, to come to this passage and to see it through the eyes of your word. I mean, this topic, rather. Please, please give me wisdom and boldness to be faithful to your word as I preach to your people this morning, and may we receive it, um, may we be challenged by your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to do a little market research right here at the beginning. Um, would it bother you if we decided we're going to create a VIP section in here on Sunday morning in this worship service, right? Now, now hear me out, okay? I, I know you don't want these front seats. This is not it. We had to actually convince the, the Durrits to sit here in order to make a little more space this way. Uh, those would not be the VIP seats, Okay. Uh, so maybe we, we go back, level up. You guys are probably right where we'd want to make the, the VIP section. Uh, and we put it in there, right? <clears throat> we'd mark it off. we put some comfy couches. Um, we, we'd, uh, we'd make sure you could get your, your morning coffee, maybe a, a mocha, cafe mocha something rather, mimosa, something like that. And, uh, <clears throat> right, we'd put Caleb there at the velvet rope to make sure no one got in that wasn't supposed to be getting in. And we wouldn't sell tickets to this, all right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't do that, but we don't want any riffraff just sitting in there. So, so we'd reserve these boxes for just people making over $300,000 a year. 
And, and it's not that we'd forget, you know, don't worry about the poor. We'd, we'd let them sit back in that corner somewhere, um, somewhere like that. I don't know if they'll get a chair, but, but we'll give them something like that. Now, if we really did that, if we decided that's what we're going to do, would that bother you that your church decided to do that with this worship gathering? Okay, I see mostly yes heads. I don't see any no heads. That's kind of what I expected. Why, why does that bother you, though? Why, why is it wrong if, if we were to honor the rich in this church and dishonor the poor? One reason that this, this actually bothers you is that it's actually about glory. You see, when James says in that opening line, you look back at it, right? Verse 1, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He, he wants to remind us right off the bat here that there is only one throne. There, there is only one absolute seat of honor. And upon that seat sits the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as James says here, right, the, the, the Lord of glory, that's who sits there. And so any partiality that you or I are going to show, and, and let's, let's make sure we understand that first, right, that word that today when we say partiality, you're most likely to use something like the word favoritism in, in its place. We, we don't tend to use the word partiality very often, but we're seeing here, right, a biblical word, we're going to use it. Partiality means that we prefer one group or one category of people, uh, or, or we are discriminating against another group or category of people. And, and usually on, on the basis of some outward appearance or outward assumptions. The, typically, it's, it's, it's showing a preference for people that are just like you. People, or, or rather, right, as we're going to see here, right, people who, who you have something to gain by giving them preferential treatment, special treatment, right? And that's the example that James highlights here. And this is probably because it's actually happening in this early church. It's a real example that he's drawing in. Maybe not the exact church he's writing to in the moment, but he's certainly heard of this at some point, uh, right? It's a first century church issue. Am I driving you nuts with this thing? Okay. Uh, he says... It, 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 if, it, if an obviously rich guy were to walk into the congregation, into this worship gathering, at about the same time as some obviously poor guy walks in, and you give that rich guy the seat of honor, and you give that poor guy, you know, a, a crummy seat or no seat at all, then that's partiality. That's what he's explaining for us then, okay? Now look at verse 4. James says that when you and I show partiality, we, we have made ungodly distinctions between people. We have divided them. We have made some value judgment on them. We, we hit, and he says there in verse 4, right, that when we do that, we have become judges with evil thoughts. Judges with evil thoughts. You, have you ever thought of yourself as being evil for making a value judgment between groups of people? Or maybe I'll ask it this way. You, you think Hitler ever considered just maybe he was evil for judging the Aryan race as superior to all other races and judging the Jewish people as something less than human. Just maybe this is evil judgment. In the example that James gives, it's easy to see why they give so much attention to the rich man. Right? It, it's tempting to, to think, you know what? If this rich man comes in here and he comes to faith... What a success that would be for us, right? His money could benefit the church, the gospel, missions. His reputation could do wonders, right, for, for the other rich folks, uh, you know, that could spread the gospel. It would be easy to think that. And those aren't necessarily negative thoughts. But, but as Christians, right, we, we might fall into these same assumptions as well. We, we think if the wealthy or the famous or the intellectual or the most influential come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then, then it's going to make the gospel look more appealing. This is going to be the way we're going to win the world to Christ, that mindset. 
To, to many today, the, the, the faith of Tim Tebow, right, is far more significant than the faith of Carol in accounting, who you don't actually know. And, and how many Christians not long ago thought, you know what, Kanye West, he's got this passion for Jesus. This is going to be amazing for the kingdom. This is, we're going to see wonders right there. Um, now, it didn't work out so well, or it hasn't worked out so well. I, I, I don't know if it works like this today, right, this, this organization, right? But when I was in high school, um, it was no secret that Young Life had this plan of evangelism. And I mean it, no secret. They would tell you actually about it. And the plan was this, that they would gather the most popular, the most athletic, the most attractive students in the high school, and they'd put them in places of leadership, they'd put them up on stage, uh, and the whole goal was, was, was this. They believed if they could do that, then they would make, it, make the gospel more attractive that everyone else would come to Young Life and hear the gospel because, because they have brought the people that are most likely to attract the most people. And I'll tell you, it actually worked in gathering people. People did come to it, right? However, it didn't lead to conversions or, or masses of students being convicted of sin or, or growing in their faith in and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It didn't lead to that kind of thing. It only led to this gathering of people. And I'm not trying to rip on Young Life. I don't know how they work today. I know their intentions were well, but but we tend to think that way, right? Uh, and we can begin to see then, even in this first century, why these Christians thought, you know what, if we're partial to this man, let's give him fa- uh, preferential treatment. Let's treat him great. Maybe he'll stick around here. But if there is one place, if there is one community on this entire earth, right, one community where the poor and the rich should be treated equal, it is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that there in verse 5. James reminds him, doesn't he? He says, God has chosen, right, the financially poor in this world to be rich in faith. He has chosen the poor to inherit the kingdom of God. And James isn't saying here, right, don't hear this wrong, he isn't saying that poverty somehow gets you the favor of God, that it somehow makes you better in the eyes of God. That's not what he's saying, right? He isn't saying that God loves the poor more than the rich. He is, he's not saying, right, that those wealthy can never come to faith in Jesus or that they should send them back out the door or anything like that. Or they aren't welcome in the church. His, his point is that, that God in his sovereignty has not based election on the financial success or failure of any individual. That's not part of what matters to him. This shouldn't surprise us, though, right? Romans 2.11 declares, for God shows no partiality. That's who God is. Paul in Galatians 3.28 makes clear that God shows no partiality in regards to whom he will redeem when he says this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, and you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now he's not saying those distinctions aren't real. Those distinctions are absolutely real. He's not denying that. He's saying those distinctions have no bearing on our relationship with the Lord. God's love for you, his his election of you, has nothing to do with your gender, nothing to do with your ethnicity. In our passage, James wants to remind these Christians that that God has chosen to, to, to bless the very people that they are now shunning. The very people you are treating like trash are the ones that, that God has, has, has beloved here. And this section ends then with James declaring that their, their partiality has dishonored the poor man. And then he asked these three rhetorical questions that are quite condemning of the rich, right? All of the answers are assumed, yes, you know it by the way the Greek's written. But here he turns the tables on them a little bit, right? Because he wants, he wants us to consider how we discern people, how we divide people, how we put values on them, and, right? So, so in a sense, he's saying this. He's saying, you, you've judged the rich people and you've honored them because they're rich, 
That's, that's the value you put here? <clears throat> and so the question we're being begged to ask, well, what's, what else is true about these particular rich people that you're talking about? <clears throat> right? What else is true about them? I bet you're, you're probably familiar about uh, Martin Luther King's, right? I usually quote from the other Martin. Uh, but Martin Luther King's famous speech, right? I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin. Are you familiar with that? Now, our, our culture sometimes acts as if, as if King just stopped right there and put a period and was done with it. King did not stop right there. He did not put a period right there. Do you, do you know how he finishes it? Right? I'll say it again, right? I, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Don't judge them by the color of their skin, but do judge them by the contents of their character. Here in verses 6 and 7, that's exactly what James is doing in regards to the, the rich here. He, he points out that the rich that you are favoring, they have oppressed many of the poor Christians. How? Right? They, they mostly at the time, they were using the court system to extract all sorts of interest rates on them or, or swindling people out of uh, property, land that they should have been inheriting and things of that nature. Uh, it, to summarize it, they have basically used their wealth and their power to oppress people instead of doing good to them. That's their character is what James is saying. Now he goes on to say that, that many of these rich guys you want to impress, they've also blasphemed the name of Jesus. And you want to honor them for that? Right? So yes, yes, call them to repentance. Yes, be willing to forgive. Yes, share the gospel with these guys. They need it. But do not honor them simply because they walk in the door and they happen to be rich. Bottom line is partiality in all its forms is tremendously unchristian. Right? And speaking of all the forms, racism, chauvinism, feminism, sexism, classism, tribalism, nationalism, ageism, right? You could probably find more of them. You know that last one, ageism? You know, you know how every generation thinks their generation is better than every other generation? And right now you're like, yeah, but we are. Have you seen the next generation? Right? Um, th that's what ageism would be. So, so Dan Doriani then takes this a little bit further. I thought this was interesting. He says, we follow James most truly when we respect all of the poor, those who are poor in personality. And he defines it right, the dull and the complaining. Th those who are poor in mind, the slow and uneducated. Those are poor in body, the wrinkled, the bald, and the overweight. Now, I bet you could explore this further too to, to, to broaden our, our sense of, of where it is we show partiality. Right? Just ask yourself that question. Who are the poor that you tend to discriminate against? Or who are the, the rich that you tend to favor over anyone else? Now, if you want to understand partiality in your own heart, it comes down to this. Who gets your investments? Who gets your time? Who gets your ambition? Who gets your respect just because of the way they are? Who do you welcome on a Sunday morning or any other social gathering that you're in? Who, who do you actively pursue the moment you kind of see them? To, to put this in James' term, who, who gets your seat of honor? Not because of character, just because of some other reason, a benefit to you or, or something. Now, now, we've got four more verses to look at. Actually, a few more than that, I think. Um, but let, let, let's consider the next, the next few in, in verse 8 here. If you've got your Bible out, I know I'm skipping ahead, really weird feeling here, but I didn't have a good transition. Uh, so let's look at 8. We're going to read. Uh, well, I'll stop when I stop. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But 
If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one, one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. This feels a little bit like a, a quick left turn. Um, it's not. Uh, it's actually a deeper dive into the sin of partiality. It's going to spread it a little wider. Uh, quite simply, if you show partiality towards people and just shrug it off, right? Like, that's not real important. You're also showing partiality to God's law, to God's word. By, by which I mean this, right? You're, you're, you're showing honor to some of God's law. Sure, I'll obey this one. I agree with it. I affirm it. That's a good law, right? Uh, at the same time, you're dishonoring other parts of God's law. I don't know about that. I just, I just don't agree, so I'm not going to do that. Not at all, right? <clears throat> that, that's, that's partiality towards God's word. And again, when we do this, it makes us evil judges. And, and, and Christian, that's a very dangerous place for us to live. Now, now let's unpack this a little bit more here, right? Verse 8, James refers to the royal law, and then he says what that royal law is. It's the royal law because it's the, the king's law, right? Uh, but he says that royal law is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You recognize that? Hopefully you recognize that, right? It it's, it's a, initially comes from when, when Jesus is asked in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, 36, hey, Rabbi, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And they're asking him, you know, of the Ten Commandments. And, and Jesus gives his answer that actually summarizes all of them. Great answer. Um, you know, in, in two sentences. And the first one is the, uh, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And, and the second what, what is, is what James has here, right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, uh, you know that the, the others related of the commandments, the, the second part, are, are embodied in our love towards others. Think, think about it. Honoring your mother and your father, that is an act of love to your mother and your father. Faithfulness to your spouse, that is an act of love. Uh, you know, you, you love your neighbor by respecting their property. You, you love them by speaking truthfully about them and speaking truthfully to them, right? All the commandments are, are like that. And so James says, right, if, if you love your neighbor, you're doing well. But, right, verse 9, you see that big but right there. Uh, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. In, in other words, when, when, when you, you are partial to the rich or any other group, you are no longer keeping God's law. And, and James is concerned that we might just think, but that's not a real big deal, is it? I mean, it's just a little partiality here. Uh, and he wants you to understand, yes. Yes, it's a big deal. The, the law of love is a big deal. All of God's word is a big deal. And again, if we just obey the laws that we agree with, that's not actually obedience to God, is it? That, that's, that's maybe letting God be some sort of advisor. Like, you can suggest these things and let me consider it. Yeah, I'll get back to you. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Maybe I'll obey you, God. Right? You're going to say Lord there probably. Uh, you, you, that's, that's considering ourselves as an authority above God. I will evaluate your law and, the, and then I'll let you know what I'll actually follow. Now, there are no little unimportant sins. And James drives that point home in verses 10 and 11 saying, right? Even if you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you're not innocent. Right? It's not like you've got a 50 on this paper. Uh, right? If you can get three out of four of them, right? It's not like you're now racking up a 75 and graduating. Uh, 
Now, I actually learned a story about a guy that was on trial for murder that's very similar to this. Uh, absolutely guilty. His DNA is everywhere. Uh, multiple witnesses of him actually committing the murder. There is video of him committing the murder, right? He's pretty much uh, admitted to committing the murder during cross-examination, right? So you've got all these things lining up. He's absolutely guilty. But then he asks, you know, I'd like to say something in my defense. Like, what are you going to say here that's somehow going to present you as being innocent? And, and the room goes quiet waiting to hear what it's going to be. And, and he tells the jury, I have been a good and faithful husband to my wife. As if what? They're going to be like, oh, well, okay. That's good. Forget about the murder then. He's, he's innocent. He's been good to his wife, right? It should be no surprise to you, right, that they found him absolutely guilty even after that defense. Breaking any of it breaks it. You know, no matter how big or small we might consider it, it, it renders us guilty before our, our righteous God. And now that, that brings us to our, our final two verses. Um, look again. We're going to start in verse, verse 12 here. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this, this brings it all home here. Your, your disposition towards others is a reflection of your real understanding of God, of who God is, of, of the grace of God, of, of the gospel you have been called to. These two verses here are all about judgment, how, how you judge and, and, and compared with the way that God judges right? How I judge compared to the way God judges. In a sense, James is flipping that first story of the rich man and the poor man walking into the gathering. So imagine, if you will, for a moment, right? Imagine that you, you walk into God's assembly, into his holy presence, right? And, and without a doubt, you, you and I are, are the poor man, the poor woman in this situation. We're dirty. We're feeling uncomfortable in this setting, not sure if we fit in. You have nothing of value to offer God, Right? You got what what? You got pockets full of broken commandments? What do you you have nothing? Nothing to warrant his partiality towards you. Can you understand what that would be like? And there's God standing inside the door. What do you need from God in that moment? You need just one thing from God. You need mercy. And Christian, because you are united to Jesus by grace through faith, mercy is exactly what God gives you. You, you will no longer be judged on whether you have kept the law. You're going to be judged on whether Jesus has kept the law, and he has perfectly. You, you don't get what you deserve because all of the mercy of God through Christ is poured out onto you. I mean, you, you see James's point at this point. How, how should a person who has been judged with the mercy of God, how should that person, you know, that has been shown the love of God and the mercy of God, how should that person now speak and act towards the lowly, the needy, the people they may be tempted to judge as so? And in case you're, you're not getting there, James adds in verse 13, right? For, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. 
which is exactly what, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? In, in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's what Jesus says a chapter later in Matthew 6, 14, for, uh, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Listen, neither Jesus nor James are suggesting that you earn the mercy of God that it's somehow merited it to you, that somehow that if you show enough mercy to others that you have now earned the mercy of God, that would be a works-based righteousness that is contrary to the, to the gospel of everything else we see in the scriptures. And right now you're thinking, okay, but why do they say that then? They say it because it's true. But hear me out. It's only true because when, when, when someone unrepentantly lacks mercy to others, this lays bare the naked truth that they have never genuinely received the gospel. If you cannot show mercy, it's because you don't know mercy, because you haven't really experienced the mercy of God. And finally, James ends with this undeveloped little phrase, right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. <clears throat> We're sinners. You and I are um, declared sinners, right, by righteous judgments. We're found guilty, not, not only in the past, but today. It's, tomorrow it's going to be true, too. And yet, in the mercy of God, in, in Christ, God triumphs over, or the mercy of God in Christ triumphs over judgment. And, and so we can rest in the grace, grace that, of, of all that God is for us. And furthermore, the mercy of God to us dismantles our judgmental hearts so that we become merciful children just like our merciful Father. And that's where the passage ends, and I, I, I do want to stop for a second and just come back, right? What, what is the ultimate application of this then? It's that we, you and I learn to love like God loves, that we learn to, to love others, show mercy to others the way that, that we've been loved and shown mercy, meaning, meaning you don't just love people like you or people who are financially or socially or, or professionally benefit to you somehow. So, so who will... You know, who are we going to choose to, to speak to when we, we walk into a setting of similar to this? Who are you going to speak to on a Sunday morning? Now, hear me out. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the people you enjoy. He's made us with these personalities, and you're going to just get along with some people and enjoy them far more. That's a gift of the Lord. Don't feel guilty about that at all. But what I'm asking is that you look around and you see in, in those moments at times, you know, is there anyone else in here that really needs my engagement? Is there really anyone else that I'm avoiding for any any judgment on them, that maybe I need to just step out of my comfort zone and go talk to them. Uh, a few weeks back, we had a, a potluck after the service, and there was a, a man that came in. He's not here right now, in case you're wondering. Uh, probably homeless. He was very nice, uh, but by most of our standards, very strange. Uh, he said he was getting off of drugs, but at the same time, it seemed like Perhaps he was still on him. If you engage with him, you know this. Uh, may, maybe it felt you a little uncomfortable that morning. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, but I was so pleased by how many of you spoke with him, how many of you welcomed him, how many of you went out of your way and, and just engaged with the man, how, how patient you were, you know, particularly some of you, you high schoolers. I know he, he sat down at your table when it was time to eat, and uh, I've heard a little about the conversations that went on there, but, but the way you were just patient to in, in, engage with him here, that, that's exactly what what Jesus is getting at that. You don't run from those situations. You, you welcome them. Uh, here, here's another application of this. You might not care about this, but uh, 
I'll say this. I, I am so grateful for the way that y'all give financially to Manhattan Press, truly. Our, our, our need financially has gone up this year, and, and y'all have, your giving has gone up. It has been such an encouragement to me. Thank you. Um, but also, I don't know how much any of you give individually. Uh, you know how much you give. God knows how much you give. Uh, Pat Zimmerman knows how much you give. Uh, but I don't know, and the elders don't know how, how much you give, and that's very intentional because uh, I don't want to be tempted at any point to show partiality of any sort, positive, negative, either way to you based on your financial contribution. Uh, and, and this is for your good too, right? I mean, if you need shepherding, if you need correction, you don't ever want the guy who, who's been called to, to shepherd you and call you out for sin in your life to be afraid of losing financial support if, if you don't like that. Uh, so that's, that's, you know, one of the ways that we actually apply this to the way we uh, we, we, we shepherd and lead here. And, and so then ultimately, welcoming and, and acting in love towards people, regardless of their wealth, their race, their gender, their social group, your, your kindness to people that you are naturally inclined to disregard or even look down upon, right? For, for, for the Christian, for, for you, for me, th- this is a sort of litmus test for us. It can be helpful, right? Do you really understand the glory of God? Do, do, do you really understand what, what God is is like? Do you really understand the gospel? Do, have you really received the mercy of God? But listen, you, you, you can love those different from you. That's a work that God does in us, right? You can welcome and invest in those that have nothing to offer you. And, and so this morning, I encourage you to be honest with yourself. Not, not overly harsh, but yeah, let's use these as a way to call us out if we, if we need it internally, right? When, when, when was the last time that someone unlike you or someone utterly unrewarding in every way received your love? Received your time, your attention, your, your kindness? You know, that's the way our, our Lord loves. You remember how Jesus welcomed the children when his disciples found them unworthy of, of, of coming near him? You remember how Jesus uh, approached that social pariah, Matthew, right, the tax collector? And not only spoke to him, but, but called him to, to follow him, to, to be his disciple. Do you remember the way that Jesus showed mercy to the woman that was caught in adultery, guilty, and, and surrounded by, by angry, judgmental men with rocks in their hands? Mercy. Jesus, the, the Lord of glory, your, your Savior, he, he welcomed all and he showed mercy if that's how Jesus treated others, treats others, who, who are we to do likewise or otherwise? Who are we to do otherwise? Let's pray. Abba, Father, merciful judge of our hearts, if we are guilty of the sin of partiality today, bring conviction to our hearts. Whether that is for the rich or for the poor, whether that is in favor of our own tribes, our own ethnicity, our own gender, our own generation, or political affiliation, or anything else, wherever we fail to love our neighbor in the way that you have called us to, grant us repentance and grant, repentance and grant us that we may begin to walk in accordance of your word and for the glory of your name. Oh, that we would show others the mercy that we have received at your hand. That we have received in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.